and I think we need a lot of a mindfulness, just one so we can stay healthy. Um, we know the COVID is having a certain effect, and just today we got more de- depressing news about being black in America in the midst of it, where they say that uh, COVID has taken off one year of life expectancy of average whites, two to three years off of Latinos, and three years off of black people's lives in, in some measurement. I don't know exactly how they measured it, but that's what they reported, suggesting that, you know, in the last 12 months, three years of your life just got cut off since since last March, and um, and that's really tragic. And, and yet it, there's also a new study that shows that white opinion is, in the majority says that they are willing to um, – Die and suffer at this in this system, rather than allow blacks to uh, have equality with them. So that's the suicidal sick racism we're dealing with. These people don't want us to ever get uh, the dream that King sang. They pretend that they're down for the dream, but when we get, you know, if, if we start activating and mobilizing for the dream, it actually has the opposite effect, where um, our advances uh, actually spawn and initiate. Um, predictable white backlash. Uh, This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Much America strays away from the ideals of justice. The goal of America is freedom. Used and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up in the destiny of America. Before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before Jefferson etched across the pages of history the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. Before the beautiful words of the Star-Spangled Banner were written, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored here without wages. They made cotton kings. They built the homes of their masters in the midst of the most humiliating and oppressive conditions. Yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continue to grow and develop. I say that if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery couldn't stop us, the opposition that we now face, including the so-called white backlash, will surely fail. We're going to win our freedom because both the sacred of our nation and the eternal will of the almighty God are embodied in our echoing demand. <laughs> Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, 
solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth, truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here at Our Common Ground. So glad to have you. Uh, For those of you who are listening on your smartphones, if you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can do so. Blogtalkradio.com backslash O-C-G. That means Our Common Ground blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Thank you so much for being with us. We've had a very busy week at Our Common Ground. On Thursday night, the third session of our Black History Month 2021 special, which is a four-part lecture series, uh, The History of Black Political Movements in America with Dr. James Taylor. Uh, One of the things that I just love about what's happening in that lecture series is Dr. Taylor is showing us the golden ribbon that runs throughout the history of our existence in this country and our struggle for freedom and justice. There's this beautiful golden ribbon from one generation to the next generation in the struggle for black freedom. And it is just such a beautiful storytelling. So uh, all of the sessions, session one, two, and three, are available to you on demand, either at ourcommonground.com or here at Blog Talk Radio on our channel, OCG. Um, Then uh, on last night, Our Common Ground had two broadcasts. Uh, I did a special broadcast uh, on the uh, celebration of the 31st anniversary of uh, the Jimmy Dockhorn Tennis Center at Gaines Park in West Palm Beach. And if you did not catch that, one of the things that you did not catch is that um, Jimmy Horn, who for more than three uh, decades broke the barrier of segregation in South Florida for black children in the tennis universe during and after segregation of public parks. And for those more than three decades, Jimmy Horn organized hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of black children to be able to play that sport. So what you, if you weren't here, what you did not get was that in July... Mr. Horn, who spent 34 years as a woodworking teacher, math and woodworking teacher, at Roosevelt High School, which was the segregated high school in West Palm Beach, 
will be inducted into the National Tennis Association Hall of Fame. That's some stuff, folks. That's some real stuff. And I am very, very proud um, and honored to have been one of his students for nearly um, nearly 11 years until I graduated from high school and went to Boston from age seven. And so the, the city of West Palm Beach uh, named the tennis courts at the Gaines Park, which is in the predominantly black, traditional black community of West Palm Beach, in his honor. And uh, on March 13th, there will be a celebration of the 31st anniversary of the Horn Tennis Center. And for those of you who are in West Palm Beach or in Palm Beach County, we we recommend that you go there. I will certainly be there if I am able. It will be after my second vaccine. I've taken the first, and it will be after my second vaccine, but I'm still double masking. I'm still doing as much isolation as I possibly can. Uh, if I can get from under community organizations that I'm that I am doing some work for. Um and uh social distancing, washing my hands frequently, using hand sanitizer, making sure that I have ha- um antibacterial wipes uh when I do have to do things like gas the car, open the door at the grocers. So we suggest that you do that, and as we always do uh, in opening up our common ground in the last year, we report to you and to help you understand the gravity of this pandemic. People are dying. As of yesterday, which was February 19th, and February 18th, which was Thursday, 483,000. 263 people have died from infection from this disease. And we encourage you to have conversations with your physician and your family uh, about the vaccine. One of the things that the experts are reporting now is that people who are not vaccinated probably Uh, get a greater chance of becoming infected and becoming very ill uh, with the new strains that are coming through. So we we hope that you will have those conversations with your physician. Uh, I can only tell you what my experience was. My experience was that, you know how a, a flu shot stings a little bit? I don't know, maybe because I was getting my flu shot through my federal employment, maybe the nurse was trying to do a job on me, but it used to sting a little bit. Um, I had no sting. I didn't even know whether, I, I wasn't looking, so I didn't know whether the guy had actually injected the needle. And I had no soreness in my arm, as some people are reporting as normal. I had nothing. It was as though... I didn't get the vaccine at all. 
I started worrying, well, maybe uh, they gave me some saline or something. No. Uh, but you should have that discussion with your uh, physician. Uh, we also want to welcome new um, listeners. Uh, I have gotten four or five um, um, email uh, from uh, various new listeners. Uh, one that came from the Netherlands, one that came from Moscow, um, uh, indicating that they had been listening and enjoying. And I got one complaint, and that complaint was from Nigeria, indicating that they were very disappointed because of the time differences. They always had to catch my show, my program, my broadcast on demand, and was thinking about setting the clock so that 5 o'clock in the morning they could get up and listen. And we encouraged them to do so. The other thing um, that was just, I don't know, you know, um, I've always been fascinated by gadgets. And I I think it was fostered by my father. My father was also fascinated with gadgets. So when new things came on the market, new gadgets, um, I remember very specifically because he he encouraged me to be the technician to learn how to use the machine and teach others how to use it, specifically my mother, which that never happened. But... When when the new, very small, compact, reel-to-reel tape recorders came on the market, my dad had read about them in some magazine, and he had pre-ordered from some place, and we went to the place, and we got it, and the guy showed us how to thread it, and we were so excited. And we were just, I was singing songs, and he was, he was, talking on it when we first got it, and then my mother decided that she could use it in her classroom and blah, 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 and then my teacher decided that she could use it in her classroom, blah, blah, blah. So I was a technician, and so gadgets have been my thing. Well, you can imagine that uh, when I was in the fourth grade and started uh, getting a subscription at school at the black school you got the school bought you a subscription to my weekly reader. You hear me talking about my weekly reader a lot because I loved my weekly reader i couldn 't wait for Monday morning to get my weekly reader, and I always loved the science section of my weekly reader. Keep in mind that when I was in the fourth grade. It was just about the time that NASA was being created, that the United States was getting interested in intergalactical travel and the whole notion of going to the moon. Well, you can imagine me on yesterday. I mean, it took from fifth grade till I was a, a sophomore in college for them to get to the moon. 
But on yesterday, you know, you always talk about uh, movies having to do with, you know, I grew up in the era where the movies had to do with, with Martians coming, blah, blah, blah. The Martians were landing. The Martians were snatching people. The Martians was killing people. The Martians were were hiding out in your basement. Well, I lived in Florida, and we didn't have a basement, so I didn't have to worry about that. But yesterday, Percy, now, we, you know, I'm so intimate with this stuff and gadgets. The most formidable, engineered car, vehicle, landed perfectly on Mars. And on board Percy, actually it's it's Perseverance. The NASA vehicle is, is called Perseverance. And on board Perseverance was Ingenuity. And I've been calling it Angie. Percy and Angie, ha <laughs> ha, um, geek that I am. And they immediately started transmitting pictures of planet Mars. Now, we've tried this before, and it hasn't worked. Percy landed perfectly. Not only did she he she land perfectly, she landed right dab smack place she was supposed to land in. It wasn't on on the other side of the uh, other side of the planet. And there we were, America, looking at. I'm trying to you know you know what it looked like to me. You know the uh, candy bar, the chocolate candy bar that has the crackles in it, Rice crispy things in it? it? That's what it looked like to me. I'm trying to think of the name of that. I know Alpha knows the name of it, so you can put it up in the chat room, Mr., since you Mr. know-it-all. That the, the candy bar that has the chocolate, it's a Nestle's candy bar, and it has the chocolate over the crunched up um uh, the crunched up Rice Krispies. That's exactly what Mars looked like to me in the images. And it is very interesting. They took temperatures uh, over the last 24 hours. And in the last 24 hours, it was 60 degrees and minus 110 on Mars. So y'all can, since Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is putting up, is bringing the flag down at half staff for the racist vermin scum Rush Limbaugh, we can raise our flags a crunch bar. Thank you, Alpho. Um, that's what Mars looked like. It looked like the front of a crunch bar. I mean, the back of a crunch bar where you could see the little holes. And you could hear the wind. So since DeSantis is is bringing down the flags at half-staff for the vermin scum 
Rush Limbaugh, then why don't we raise some flags to Percy and Ingenuity? Because that shit was amazing. All I got to say is it was absolutely amazing. Everybody said, okay, Dennis, just calm down, just calm down. Can you imagine what it felt like for NASA engineers to go through every step of making this happen and to watch it happen and to watch it happen perfectly? That is a sense of accomplishment that few of us, very few of us, ever get. And so my hat is off to the engineers of at NASA tonight because, dang, <laughs> they did it. Uh, and for those of you who have joined us, this is our common ground. This is not a, a show about NASA and Percy and ingenuity. This is, but I just, I had, sometimes I need to have an open mic night, you know, because I have some guests who, I have a lot of guests who have a lot of stuff to get out, and sometimes I don't have a space to um, to really talk to you. So we did the show on uh, Jimmy Horn, Doc Horn, uh, on yesterday at seven thirty. Then we had the Alpha show last night, and you know what he was doing: playing checkers and talking shit. That's how I see it. And then House Music Lover had the nerve to be on on the Alpha show last night chalking trash about Florida weather while y'all sitting in eight inches eight eight inches of snow, thirteen inches of snow. In Florida we had perfect weather yesterday. Perfect. And last night. It's 68 degrees in Florida at 10:22 tonight. It's a house lo- house music lover. So you know, you know, you can put that and and at the bottom of your snow shovel. And and Alfo's complaining like he's sitting, like he just came back from from pushing a snowblower and a shovel on his show last night, and we know that that is not true because Alpha's got a son who has a snow shovel, a snow blower. So we're not even going to work about it because, you know, I'm sitting in 68-degree weather, and guess what? They got a foot of snow today in Boston. That's not on me. So thank you so very much for for being with us. I do want to bring to your attention the crisis again in in Texas. Um, people, many people have had their power restored, but there's been so much damage that the power at the at the house level has had to be shut off because of the flooding from burst uh, uh, pipes. So there's a water crisis, and these poor these people have gone from a temperature crisis to a snow crisis to a freezing crisis, 
and now a water crisis with the kind of inept, incompetent, and dispassionate state and local government that can be found. And, you know, most of the people who will be the victims of of the um, these crises will be black and poor people, black, Hispanic, and poor people. And if you were following me last week, one of the things that I reported in regard to the COVID um, um, numbers across the country, 96% of all of the COVID hospitalizations black and Hispanic. So in addition to the the pandemic, these people in Texas are struggling. In addition to an incompetent, dispassionate government where the squad, AOC and Ayanna Presley and and Ilhan Omar, representatives that have nothing to do with Texas, but understand that all U.S. government is responsible for all U.S. citizens and residents. But, but you know, and and Ted, and we're not even talk about Ted Cruz, uh, Lion Ted going to uh, wherever he went in Mexico, Curacao, where, Cancun. We're not even talk about that. So. Here's the deal. How people govern normally in under normal circumstances is exactly how they are going to govern in a crisis. All you have to do is go back to Katrina, go back to Harvey, and see incompetence and the way in which it kills people. I heard a report from, um, you know, the guy that I like on NBC that comes on on the weekend, and he's my homeboy. Well, anyway, um, the report indicated that there were babies where parents were unable to keep them warm enough that died in Texas this week in the United States of America. Tonight at our common ground, we have open mic. Our number is 347-838-9852. And we're we're focusing on white redemption sitting on the fault line of black forgiveness. And I know all of you are going to ask, Janice, what are you talking about? Well, we're going to give you some stuff, some reference points uh, on this. But here are some basic questions. Here's some, some very basic questions. And, and and comments that I, I want to offer. 
I think that what we are facing in this country as black people are kind of like extraordinary request of us to be patient after 400 plus years, to be forgiving. And so I'm asking the question, when are we going to start telling these people, you're not off the hook? Because nothing has happened to make it so. We should not be living on a black fault line one month away from the Confederacy taking orders from a white nationalist who was the President of the United States to claim their country. So I, I think that we're we're living on this black fault line of forgiveness, n- not understanding that white people live under a myth about black forgiveness. It seems that this idea of forgiveness and and, and uh, forgiveness, you know, uh, that, that that they think that if we offer them forgiveness, then they are redeemed. Okay. So I want to be clear about what redemption is. Redemption is the act, the action, it is a noun, of saving or being saved from sin, from error, or from evil. So tonight at our common ground, what I'm asking, I'm asking is, have we become, you know, and Dr. James Taylor had me, started me thinking about this on Thursday night when he was talking. So I put together some of some of what he told us about history and this whole notion of white redemption, white guilt, and black forgiveness. So I, I put together some stuff to give you a framework. You know, I, I don't like people calling me up and talking out their ass. I really don't. I mean, excuse me, but I, I really don't. Uh, because there is no reason. We have too many reasons, too much rationale to back up our demand, our demand for freedom and justice as a people. Too much validation to our struggle. You know, one of the reasons that, I don't know if you all know it, but my hashtag, y'all don't follow me on hashtag. And Alpha has an account on on Twitter, and you Twitter him, and he never Twitters you back. I don't don't get what that is, but if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's, at Janice OCG. And my Twitter handle is hashtag trust your struggle. That has been my, I've been on Twitter for 11 years, and that has been my handle on Twitter for 11 years, in addition to Black Talk Matters. Well, you know why that. And, you know, I own blacktalkmatters.com, 
and I own TrustYourStruggle.com and OurCommonGround.com and OurCommonGround.net. I own TruthWorks.com, TruthWorks.net. I own all of that. So you all better not be using my my stuff now because I will, you know, I'll, I'll be as litigious as who, who is real, uh, uh, the former... The former guy. <laughs> I love that when when Joe Biden said that. I mean, he was really Joe Biden is not is not a you know, and I say the same thing about me. Clever guy, clever in his his language and speech. You know, if y'all expected me ever to be a comedian, I ain't got it, and I ain't gonna try it. But I thought that was very clever. When Joe Biden came with the former guy, because <laughs> that that really that really did it for me. So my question tonight is: Are we about to give forgive them for the refusal to aggressively aggrieve us from the current sitting? Supreme Court of the United States and the decisions that they have made in regard to our voting rights? Are we about to forgive them for what Donald Trump, with his band of complicit traitors and betrayers at the Department of Justice for four years? Y'all know I know the Department of Justice. And what, what Trump did there And we're going to talk about that too. And and the other is, are we about to forgive them sitting on the fault line of our forgiveness for the judicial murder of black men and black women in American streets and cities, cities and streets? Are we about to forgive them for Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland? So I'm going to present a few things and then... Um, I'm hoping that we will can have some discussion about this. Not long discussion. Get your get your thoughts together um, about where our fault line is, where our forgiveness fault line is, because these white people they're sitting asking for redemption, sitting on our fault line. And I ain't for it. I, ain't, I I am just not for it. Let's talk some more at 347-838-9852 right after this. Black people have the bad habit of loving everybody else's cause. And no, and if you think about it, who loves us back? What 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 racial group loves us back? Is there one race in America that loves black people? 
as much as they hate them? Because all hate us. But does any love us? See, I don't know of anybody that loves us, but I know we love every group that don't love us. We love Jews. We love the Irish. We love white people in general. We love the police. Um, we, we, we love, um, you know, our white Christian brothers and sisters. Black people will love a cop that killed their son in the courtroom like Botham John. We'll love a white man that prays with us for three hours and then kills us in Charleston. We'll love a man, a white man with a gun who could have easily let my son not be paralyzed, but we'll love a white man who shoots my son in Kenosha seven times in the back at the, in front of his children and paralyze him. And before I sit down for my interview with Mr. Crump, my attorney, I forgive the white cop that shoots him and says he needs training. That's some black forgiveness that no white person has ever demonstrated. In fact, Ms. Graham, I sat here and watched last night the footage of the Black Panther Party, as it related on YouTube to Fred Hampton, and they talked about the two New York police court officers who were killed by some New York Panthers. One was black and one was white cop. The, uh, the white wife uh, was on the recording talking about the murder of her husband and the, the parole of the brother who's still in, he's still in prison for 49 years from the Black Panther killing of NYPD. And the white woman sat there and said, I don't forgive him. I'm never going to forgive him. When he dies, his God, whatever God he believes in, their God can take care of them. That's a white person. A black person is the black people in Charleston Church forgave that devil, and that's what he was, a devil. He, they forgave that devil before their blood dried. The, same, the sun was still up, and the word went out to all black America, we forgive him. And half black people were angry, and the other half of y'all that go to church and that are Christian were like, well, Lord, I know, I understand. That's what we're supposed to do. That, that's what the Bible teaches, right? But how come we're the only ones that learned it? How come, how come the white man ain't learned to be forgiving? In all your black life, and you 75 years old, mama, you 72 years old, daddy, you 48 years old, uh, brother, and you ain't never in your black life seen a white man stand up at a press conference on CNN or Fox or MSNBC and say, I forgive the brother, the black man that shot my daughter, or I forgive the black man that robbed my house, or I forgive the black man that killed my police officer husband. You'll never see it because they don't have it in them. But I've given you five examples randomly that happened with us just in the Black Lives Matter movement. Martin Luther King's whole philosophy was around, um, you know, letting the racists kill us. King believed that we should love the racists even as he's killing us. That's how sick Martin Luther King's ideology was. That was ridiculous. I don't know what Martin Luther King was thinking. And that's why a lot of people rejected it. King believed in unmerited suffering was redemptive, meaning if the racist is killing you, love him to death. Now, I ain't got that kind of religion. I ain't got that kind of faith. I ain't got that kind of Bible. And I'm just saying to you, black people are expected to have that kind of deep faith. White people aren't. White people aren't expected to forgive. Why? Why aren't white people, when we do wrong in society, crime, or anything, why are, we, why are they not expected to forgive? And why do white people never forgive? But black people forgave in Botham John and in Charleston and in Kenosha. That was Dr. James Taylor on Thursday night talking about the history of black struggle 
in America, the history of black political movements. So it it, kind of struck me, and that was just another night I couldn't sleep, because it's a fair question. It is a very fair question, and I know many of you will, as Dr. Taylor um, indicated, many of you will say, well, you know, it makes us better than them. The Bible teaches us that we should love our enemies. There is a difference between an enemy and an oppressor. Let me help, let me help you put it in 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 perspective. Let me help you put it in context. Was a slave owner who beat a slave within one inch of her life or his life, was that an enemy or was that an oppressor, a possessor? Let me ask you another question so that you can put it in perspective. When you were in Sunday school, and and you, you, you know I'm t- you're talking to a person who went to Sunday school every Sunday. If you didn't go to Sunday school in my house, well, it was no such thing. You weren't going to Sunday school. You better you better have Ebola if you expected not to go to Sunday school or school in my house. So I I went to church. I grew up in the AME church. I went to Sunday school, church, Allen Knights, all that stuff. And, of course, I was taught the principles of Christianity. But one of the things you all like to uh, talk about, oh, uh, I'm Pan-African, I'm um, Afrocentric, and if that is so, then you need to you understand about how we were colonialized on their land by Christians and the way in which white Christians in this country up until yesterday or tonight have weaponized the Christian doctrine and the Bible. You need to go back and check your history to understand who King James was and why it was so important for him to translate the Greek Bible. Okay. I'm telling you, you you're missing some real stuff if you're not sitting in on Dr. Taylor's lecture, you're getting, if you took a class from Dr. Taylor at the University of San Francisco, it would cost you $578 for one class. We're giving it to you for free because we love black people. Last night, Thursday night, he, he, had, he had me dying up in here because he was saying, I love black people. I love black people when I die. That's what I'm going to miss. 
773, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Well, good evening, Janice, and how are you? I'm fine, Alpha. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> well, I want to say, I want to say this, and I want to say this. Um, I'm very glad that you're playing uh, bits and pieces of Dr. Taylor's uh, presentation from Thursdays, and I would hope that you would continue to do so for those who have missed it. And we need to spread it, you know, with both of yeah, we do. his show and your show. And I'm going to say, no, I didn't go to church. I didn't learn forgiveness. But that is the danger, the mere danger of religion. We accept that they gave us their Bible we accepted their religion, and now we are supposed to walk in that path, in that shadow of their religion, and their religion preaches forgiveness. Yet they do not address their hypocrisy. Their hypocrisy but, 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 too. They don't. <laughs> they don't follow their own religion. Yeah, it's, that is not what they do. At the base yep. of what they yep. do. But, you know, one of the things that I do want to say is that forgiveness, even if you go through the biblical, um, I can't say biblical because there's so many different Bibles, but if you go through the Christian principle of forgiveness, it is for someone who is willing to redeem themselves. You have to pay for forgiveness. And these people aren't willing to change. Well, who are we redeeming ourselves to? No, 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 no. I'm saying white redemption. White redemption. Well, I understand that. White redemption and they, look, you can't can't have it both ways. And this is what they want. Absolutely. That's my point, Alpha. The the point is that whites are looking for redemption. These good whites, these white lefties, these white Democrats, these white um, uh, progressives, they're all looking for redemption. But you pay for redemption. It is a noun. It is the price you pay for what you have done that you are willing to do something to eradicate, to erase, to remove the sin and the error. I ain't trying to preach up in here tonight, but hey, when you know, you just know. Now you know. Well, so you're not trying to here, preach. Here are people who are seeking redemption, and black people are are. are the, the forgiveness that we have to offer is beginning to fracture under the burden of oppression. Because just like, I mean, you were there, you were there, Alpha, and, and I noticed you were really behaving in the, in the chat room when, when, Dr., when I'm on the air. 
you clown in the chat room. When Dr. Taylor is on the on the air, you behave. So anyway, we're not going to talk about that. But but the 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 idea the idea is that as Dr. Taylor has emphasized over and over in the three sessions that he's done so far, the idea is that we better understand that if we don't turn the wheel right now, we're going to be living under 50 more years of this. And this is white people riding on white people because they promised that they were going to take their country back. Well, that's where we are now. That's exactly and my, where we are. It's a and I understand. I understand what Dr. Taylor has been um, disseminating to the listeners, and he's absolutely right. And my point is simply this: that is the biggest, the, the biggest threat is our acceptance of the white man's Bible. Yeah, I, I, I will. I don't know about the white, the white man's Bible, the black man's Bible, you know, well, but it, it is our acceptance to the extent that we're willing to extend forgiveness. Well, you're right, but that's all in the that's all in their Bible, and that's right. let us not get let's let us remember that most of what's in their Bible are all the walls that they've taken it from in Egypt. You, you have to look at it like that too, and nowhere on those walls does it have this emphasis of forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are a lot of people, Alpha, who will respond by saying, well, you know, there's always in the history of the world been slavery. There has, let me, let me be clear about this. There has never been in the history of, of the world, even at the time of shadowed slavery in the United States of America, the kind of slavery, shadow slavery, where families were separated, children were sold from their parents, parents, parents weren't were, were were like breeding animals. Nowhere in the history of the world did that happen, except for in the United States of America. Well, you're right, and I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad you, uh, you're playing the clips of uh, of what uh, Dr. Taylor disseminates to this uh, Black History this month of February. Yeah. And well, Alpo, you more. know what I'm going to do? I, I really appreciate that you called because you were one of the listeners as he was going through this, and I can't possibly play everything people can listen can hear it on demand but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on mute because I may have to come back to you after this 
this next clip to get your response because you okay. were there. Okay. Okay, so we're, we're going to go in to a part about how we how we respond to all of this. Our mental health is 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 really at at risk. So I'm going to play one more, um, two more before we take a break at the top of the hour. And our number is 347-838-9852. And you all know this is our common ground, right? Okay. Anybody, you just got born to your family, and your family was criminal, and your family stole the land, and your family raped the women, and your family uh, stole the labor of black people. From the American Revolution to the Civil War is 90 years. That 90 years is the key point, Ms. Graham, for us to emphasize as black people between the two events, Revolution, Civil War, 1776-1861. In between that 90 years is when black slave labor is making America richer than the rest of the planet. So instead of us just thinking in the abstract, oh, yeah, black people built this country, I'm trying to give you the time period that you can have more specificity. Here on our common ground, you can get specificity. Jesus would be amazed. And that's what I'm trying to say about black people. We are the good. We are the salt of this earth. And tragically, because of our physical conditions and circumstances, we end up not giving each other the best of our salt. So we treat others good. We love Palestine. We love Arabs. We love Muslims. We love the gays. We love transgender. We love uh, animals. We love the environment. But then we'll pick up a 9 millimeter and kill each other quick. So there's a sickness in it, too. Like we have a deep love and universalism for others, but we have a deep sickness toward ourselves. Um, You know, there's something about us where we tend to dismiss each other more easily and we'll engage each other in violence more easily. And I think we have got to learn as a black people, we got to come up with some, de- uh, what's the word, de-escalation campaigns. We have got to, we always have had them. Farrakhan in 85 went throughout L.A. saying stop the killing. You know, Farrakhan did the stop the, stop the killing campaign. We need to keep those kinds of local campaigns going to encourage people um, because uh, it's very important that we do. And there you have it. That has to do with our well-being as a people. How can we imagine a future for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, if in fact we are subjected to an environment, a cultural environment, a governmental environment, just white folks all over the place. And 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 we lose like sand like like if you put go to the beach and put sand in your hand and it's a it's a, a really uh hot day. The sand just falls between your fingers. 
our respect and regard for each other. Now, you know, there's so many perspectives about how you can think about that. But I'm going to give you one perspective or a couple of perspectives. Indulge me tonight. A million black people listen to the Joe Madison show every morning. Each one of them who tunes in pays $30 a month to listen to Joe Madison. Now, look, this doesn't have anything to do. I've known Joe since the... Second week, I, 34 years ago, when I started doing talk radio. And the reason I started talk, doing talk radio is because I had been listening to talk radio, Jerry Williams in Boston, for years. And I kept saying to myself, damn, black people ought to have something like that. When I went to work for Tom Atkins, who was the first black city councilor in the city of Boston, I said to him, Tom, we ought to do a talk radio show at the black talk ra- at the black station that plays music 24 hours. Not 24 hours, but you know, back then community radio didn't have 24 hours. But anyway, and every Saturday, Tom and I would go to the radio station. He would talk and I would handle the phones. And you know the rest of the story. So anyway, so so this is not about Joe. This is not about Karen, who was a Republican until Sirius Radio told her, "Look, you can't talk Republican stuff on my on this radio station because black people are not going to listen to you talking about the Republican Party. It'll be fifteen of them listening in. So you got to change your tune." She figured it out and changed her tune, and now she's Karen Hunter, the black abolitionist. But that's okay. We need abolitionists. We need people to change. But she changed. Well, anyway. So while all that was going on, we lost as a people 231 local black radio stations across the country. And I was just talking to to an activist out of Atlanta just tonight before I came on on the air. And one of the things I want to emphasize to him is that black people are not sitting on their asses because they don't care about black people. They're sitting on their asses because they don't know what to do, and all of them are not on the Internet, and they don't know the truth about what's going on in their community. When I was at WPOM in West Palm Beach, black people knew what was happening in the schools, what was happening in the courthouse, what was happening in the city commission, the county commission, every day. There are no black newspapers. When I was growing up, there was the Florida Photo News, and Ms. Ms. Williams put that paper out every Friday. Every Friday, and you knew everything that was going on about black people and what black people were up to and facing in West Palm Beach and across the nation. Every week, 
The reason I wanted to be smart in school is because Ms. M.A. Williams published the honor roll in the in the Florida Photo News, and I wanted my name to be there too. That was when the schools were segregated. All the black kids who made this honor roll, the, the name was in the paper every six weeks. So black people are not sitting back and allowing things happening to him, them, their sons and their daughters and their nephews and their grandsons being shot down by police because they aren't getting the truth about what is possible, what is the vision, what can happen, how to organize. And here I am at Our Common Ground. And I can't do the local because I got too many people listening to me. Uh, What, 3% of all the people who listen to me every Saturday night are in Jamaica? And black people have gotten to somehow become comfortable with getting corporate news, getting corporate information, to getting corporate translation of their own struggle. I'll have nothing against Joy Reid. She is smart. I've known Joy Joy Reid since she was at the Miami Herald when I was at WPOM. She and I were, she interviewed me once, and, and we were on a panel once, you know, the whole nine yards. This Jason Johnson guy, who is my homeboy, he's doing a wonderful job. But he is not talking about the mayor specifically of Chicago and the political issues of the black people in Chicago. And that used to be Melanie, Lord, I forgot the woman's name, but her daddy owned the radio station. And she had a talk show in Chicago, and she talked Chicago black politics every day. A Bob Law in New York, night talk, every night. And you all know who I'm going to blame, but I'm not going there tonight. So that is the essence, the meat of how we respect people. You know, I can't even get people to share my show notices on Facebook. All day long, every day, I'm on Facebook and Twitter trying to get people here on Saturday night at 10 o'clock. In the pandemic, I thought the audience was going to grow because, you know, people are not going to the nightclubs. They're not doing what they usually do on Saturday night, coming home half in the bag at uh, after they've been at the at the restaurant and drinking and come home and, and, and fall into bed. But... It is a matter of how we respect each other. Let's go to the third um, before I take a break. And the specificity is that uh, black people, you know, had this very specific uh, stage of, of, their, of, their, of their development. So I think it's important to recognize from Prince Hall to the Declaration of Independence 
I said on this show recently, if you look throughout the history of black people in terms of their writings and manifestos, they always emphasize the Declaration of Independence. Frederick Douglass's 5th of July speech, what to the Negro is your 4th of July? That's him destroying it. That's him destroying it. He basically, like, like Prince Hall, he's, in other words, Frederick Douglass's 4th of July speech that condemns the white version of the 4th of July is in the Prince Hall tradition. We have our way of understanding the Declaration of Independence. You have yours. And, Ms. Graham, I've been trying to say, I, I'm having a hard time getting it out, but I keep trying to say we are the better alternative of how to be America in America compared to the white people. And what I mean by that is the white people want to you, uh, see the Declaration of Independence as war. But the black orientation was, how, do, how can we apply this idea to all people? And so now nobody knows this, or very few people know, that it was black people who applied the declaration to society. It was white men who only saw it as a law manifesto. But in a black man named Prince Hall, the founder of black Freemasonry uh, in America, in Boston, at the Revolution, he is a founding father. There were black founding fathers. And that's why Prince Hall is important. Malcolm X, David Walker, Jeremiah Wright, the women as well, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Queen Audley, Mother Moore, Septima Clark, Daisy Bates, these women were revolutionary lionesses in their hearts. They 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 would destroy you in terms of you being an obstructionist to black people. These women trained a little boy named Martin Luther King. Septima Clark, I think it was, or Daisy Bates, took King to the uh, Highlander Folk, uh, Folk School sorry, in Tennessee when King was a very young guy. These women had already been trained in these tactics. So I'm trying to get you to understand. Black people, when we were brought here as slaves, we were not expected to survive. And lucky for them, we did. Because if we were not here, America would be dead already right now because white America ain't got nothing left to offer it but negativity, violence. And he didn't end there. And you'll have to listen on demand. This is uh, excerpts from Session 3 with Dr. James Taylor. Uh, Alpha, I'm going to let you come back and respond, and then we're going to take a break. I'm here, Janice. Uh, you know, Dr. Taylor, as always, as always, he's basically telling you telling the right thing. But what I've what I've noticed is that people approach they approach all of this in a different way than I do. I approach it in the same vein of of war. And the Constitution is not just about war. But we have been so victimized and scarred and the Constitution has been put out front as a shield for them and they hide behind the Constitution along with the flag and along with the Bible to keep us at bay. You know, you played a 
uh, a bit from a black young lady who ended what she said with, you better hope that we are simply coming for equality and not for revenge. And I'm on the back end of what she said. If I show up, I want revenge. Some people might show up and want equality. Right now, equality is not enough. What we're finding out, look at what we're finding out about how many military and policemen were involved in the siege on the Capitol. This basically exposes how many law officers, how many Klansmen have integrated the police, the military, the judicial system, the prosecutors. How many Klansmen are amongst those? who basically run white supremacy throughout this country. How many Klansmen have, you know, we've always wondered why the Klan has not been designated a terrorist organization. And that's because most of them are in the Klan. Most of well, them are but, but, but Alpha, Alpha, most of us uh, and most listeners are shaking their head. We knew when they breached the barriers that cops, military people were involved and collaborated with this riot, with the rioters, and they were part of the planning. We knew that. I mean, black people always know. So you're absolutely right that we have to understand that this is Civil War 2.0, where we are right now. I'm going to have to take a break, Alpha, and thank you for your call. And if you want, you know, you you know, you know, we have it like that. If you want to call back, you know, you can. <laughs> you you privileged here. Thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. That was Alpha. In the second hour, we are going to take a look at uh, policing the police uh, because I think it's important. We'll be right back. Black people are expected to have that kind of deep faith. White people aren't. White people aren't expected to forgive. Why? Why aren't white people, when we do wrong in society, crime, or anything? Why are we, why are they not expected to forgive? And why do white people never forgive? But black people forgave in Botham John and in Charleston and in Kenosha. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. Wizard of Oz is 70 years old. Today, if Dorothy were to encounter men with no brains, no heart, and no balls, she wouldn't be in Oz. She'd be in Congress. <laughs> Just down. Just down. 
the Alpha Show, Fridays, 10 p.m. on TruthWorks Network. Hi, I'm Venus Williams. You know, I heard recently that the two main reasons for not getting an annual mammogram are limited access and fear. I know that there are low-cost and even free screenings at some hospitals and clinics, and I've even heard of mobile mammogram units in some areas. Talk about service. Look, I know getting a screening is not as exciting as shopping, but life is for living. So take the first step to breast health. Get the mammogram. For more information, please visit BreastCancerAwareness.com. Beginning and endings that people's dates applied fixed to them. In fact, Foner, uh, John Hope Franklin, and Du Bois all used three different periods for what they call the Reconstruction period. Let me say that again. All the major scholars have different dates on what Reconstruction's decade dates are. They're not exact. One starts at about 1862 and goes to 1877. Du Bois goes 1860 to 1880. And John Hope Franklin has a similar kind of construction, but they aren't exact. But the point is that Reconstruction is really a new movement from an old black movement called the Convention Movement. And then, du Bo- and then after Reconstruction, again, Du Bois thinks it's great. Du Bois thinks racial democracy um, is happening. That's what he calls it. He calls it racial democracy. Racial reconstruction is what he calls it. And he thinks that this is, the, the, this is what the American Revolution should have done 90 years earlier. But the second violent American Revolution, called the Civil War, with the Black Revolution and general strike within it, has produced a new America. So even Abraham Lincoln is understanding America with the Emancipation Proclamation as a new America with a new genealogy, and that genealogy runs from Abraham Lincoln to Martin Luther King to Barack Obama to black folk. And I'm putting Obama in there just because the black presidency was black people, not Obama. I should have said the black presidency so you don't get upset because the black presidency was black people's idea 45 years before Obama came along. That was black America's strategy in Gary, in Philly, in Atlanta, and in Little Rock. When Jesse was running around, Farrakhan was there, Jesse was there, Miss Graham was there, uh, Baraka was there, Ronald Walter was there, Jesse was running around talking about his nation time. What time is it? It's nation time. Jesse still had his afro. By 72, 73, Jesse cuts it and joins the McGovern group. And then Jesse runs as... Black History Matters. And if Black History Matters, then the golden ribbon that weaves it together, nurturing a new era of liberation, does as well. We hope that you'll join us. The History of Black Political Movements in America with Dr. James Taylor. Thursdays, 8 p.m. at Our Common Ground. Black History Matters. The context in which it was made matters as well. Thank you so much for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Don't forget to let your friends, our allies, and comrades know that we are here each Saturday, 10 p.m., live. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Don't forget, if you miss a broadcast, all of our past live broadcasts are available on our website at OurCommonGround.com or here at Blog Talk Radio. Our Common Ground, on demand.
I'm saying to you that you have to tap into that culture. And you've got to understand that white America has been lying to itself and to us all along about its claims to democracy. That's why Malcolm says very famously, in America, democracy is hypocrisy, he says. He says, if America is not hypocrisy, why are our people not free? If America is not hypocrisy, why are our people not, not free? And that's what Malcolm said. Malcolm, he understood that white democracy or the white rendition of democracy in America is racism. The black rendition of democracy in America is for all people, including non-blacks. And I said, we even love people that don't love us, our white Christian brothers and sisters. Black people will love a cop that killed their son in the courtroom like Botham John. We'll love a white man that prays with us for three hours and then kills us in Charleston. We'll love a man, a white man with a gun who could have easily let my son not be paralyzed, but we'll love a white man who shoots my son in Kenosha seven times in the back at the, in front of his children and paralyze him. And before I sit down for my interview with Mr. Crump, my attorney, I forgive the white cop that shoots him and says he needs training. That's some black forgiveness that no white person has ever demonstrated. And now back to Our Common Ground. Yeah, Cisco Kid was a friend of mine. <laughs> Thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Tonight we're focusing on open mic night. And I see some people on my board, and you're all going to wait till the last five minutes, and guess what? You're going to be stoned out of luck. White redemption on the fault line of black forgiveness. I think it's it's really uh, worth many conversations about how we seem to forgive, to turn a blind eye to what our government does, what the police does, and not recognizing that we have been here before. And as Dr. Taylor will always tell you, and I talk to him a lot, Dr. Taylor will always tell you that we won. At every juncture, we won. If we had not won, imagine for a minute what America would be if we had not won all of the things we struggled for in the civil rights era. If we had not won. Imagine for a moment what America would be if, for instance, we had not won some of what we gained during the Black Power Movement. And 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 let me let me say about the Black Power Movement. And and I, I also want to say it about the Civil Rights Era. My generation. And you can go back and tell your children, your grandchildren, whoever you want to tell. My generation, think about it. Think about it. In employment, in financial and banking laws in America, in housing laws, in employment, in education. America was changed. The 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 
what do you call it, the gear was changed around 1968, and we put our foot to the gas from 68 to 87. That's what we did. In addition to me thinking that I love black people, I want my grandchildren and my daughter to know that it was us. I have a grandson who's a freshman at Stanford who's not going to take any guff, who's going to get his degree, as he says, and jump on out there, leaving all the dust that they create behind, the same way he did in his prestigious private boys' school, leaving it all behind, even though, um, and we did it by creating a new generation that had a consciousness, not a shamefulness about who they were and where they where they stood in the history of this country. Alpha, Greta, Ignatius, if you're out there, Jimmy Bohorn. Oh, we did this. So when you hear young people when you hear young people who are also doing things that will count, that will make a difference in 25, 30 years, when you hear them say that we abandoned them, we didn't uh, pass the torch, it's bullshit. I'm going to say that again. It's pure bullshit. Can I say it nicely? Oh, that's really bullshit. Okay, I said it nicely. Um, So you you look at Dr. Taylor. Dr. Taylor told the story, I don't know which one of these shows, maybe on my show or during the history uh, lecture, that a woman who was a Delta in his community gave him Vincent Harding's book, there is a river. And I'm telling you, it, you, you don't understand black people. You don't love, understand your love of black people, your love, your call to your ancestors until you read Vincent Harding's book, There is a River. When I read Vincent Harding's book, believe me, I was to completely completely so filled I was useless for almost two days so I, I just want to put 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 that out there and 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 the reason why people like me and Alpha and and other activists are still of our age, are still so outraged, still so on fire, 
is because we understand the place where we are. We understand when they say take back our take back my country, we know what they are talking about. They are talking about snatching the soul country including my children, my grandchildren and and the children that they will 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 have. They are talking about totally making you invisible and using your labor again to enrich themselves and build a strong white country. That's why they'll take your money in their banks and then won't give you a mortgage. That's why they will take your money for their rent and won't fix your hot water heater. That's why they will take your money and for their rent and don't care about your children suffering from the mole infestation in the place where you pay for. Because you must be invisible. And y'all can call me a radical. You can call me, yes, I'm a radical. Yes, I am passionate about it. And yes, I will struggle about this because not only do I love my people, but I want the best for the my grandchildren and their children. I do not want them I do not want them to give and not receive. What other kind of system do you all think goes on in the world in in the white world? Ain't nobody white giving and not receiving. It is black people. Oh, you want this job? Well, we're we can give you we can give you $125,000, and then you get on a job and find out that the person who has less credentials than you making $215,000 doing the same work. And and that person's doing it less than you're doing it because you got to be better than everybody else. That's the Civil War. We're going to uh, check out this last clip from Dr. Taylor, and you know when you call three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two, you have to die, you have to hit that one button in order to let me know you want to talk. When we do wrong in society, crime or anything, why are we? Why are they not expected to forgive? And why do white people never forgive? But black people forgave in Botham John and in Charleston and in Kenosha. Why? It has something to do with the lack. It has something to do with the fact that the one thing white people have in common is racist culture, and that's the only culture they have left. So that's why they're expressing the the, the culture we still have left. We're expressing in in cultural forms. The culture they have left is racist culture. I 
A racist culture is what we are up against. I do have uh, an announcement uh, for all of you. In June of last year, Comcast, NBC, Universal announced the development of a multi-year plan to allocate $75 million in cash and $25 million in media over the next three years to fight injustice and inequality against any race, ethnicity, gender, identity, sexual orientation, or ability. So starting on March 1st, 2021, small businesses may apply for the Comcast Rise Investment Fund. If you're a small business and you're listening, listen up. The application uh, period begins March 1st, 2021. There are four there are five hundred grants totaling five million dollars and they are going to be distributed to one hundred small businesses in each city. Each business will receive a ten thousand dollar monetary grant. The application period is March first through fourteenth, twenty twenty one, and grants will be announced at the end of April. 2021 and awarded in May 2021. Now, here are the eligibilities. This is very important. I'm going to start really bringing this stuff to the air because I can look at my demographics and it really, uh, I can see what might interest listeners in terms of uh, economic and business development. The business requirements is that the business uh, operation must be established for three or four more or more years. Twenty-five or less full-time and part-time employees. And here is where the March grants are going to be located. Atlanta, Georgia, Cobb, Clayton, DeKalb, Fulton, and Gwinnett counties. Chicago, City of Chicago and Cook County. Detroit, City of Detroit, also including Hamtramck, Michigan, and Highland Park, Michigan. Houston, Texas, Harris and Fort Bend counties, and Philadelphia, City of Philadelphia, and City of Chester. If you'd like to have more information, about this grant, you can go to um, just Google Comcast.com, Comcast Rise Investment Fund, Comcast Rise Investment Fund. So um, we are hoping and wish you well if you decide to take the opportunity to apply. You know, you really, really have to apply. When, 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 when I was selected as a White House fellow, 
there were 130 positions available. And I almost didn't apply because it was just 131, you know, but, but I figured, you know, in Boston, how many people, blah, blah, blah. So 22,000 applications for those 130 openings when Bill Clinton announced them. These were called White House Community Builder Fellowships. And 22,000 people applied. And this was back in 1998. Uh, 22,000 people applied for 130. And I got one of them. Um, And there was only... um, Two positions in um, there was one position in Boston and two positions in New York, and that's how I started servicing serving my country. So don't put off if you think your business is eligible for these grants and you your business is located in those locations. Uh, we don't have very much time, and uh, I really wanted this to be an open mic, and I really thought that people would be interested in talking about this, but we're going to move on to another area, and I may have to interrupt this um, this clip because I do want to talk about this whole idea because I think there are two keys. Uh, to what we have to do in this war. And the first one, in order to energize and organize black people, is we've got to get serious about police accountability and police brutality, misconduct, and murder against black people in this country. If we do not do that as activists, as advocates, uh black people you know, the the black people who black people who depend upon us to hold them up aren't gonna have very much respect to respect of of us around organizing. That is how Black movements have died. This is not the first time that we have attempted in my lifetime to address the issue of police brutality and murders. We did it, uh, Ida B. Wells, in challenging lynching. We did it with co-intel-pro- challenges and demands. Now we must do it again. As Dr. Taylor over and over has said, we just go through, we cycle through one movement to the next. And we do it, you know, what what the old gospel, black gospel said, until I die. 
people when we do wrong in society, crime or anything? Why are we why are they not expected to forgive? And why do white people never forgive? But black people forgave in Botham John and in Charleston. That was real wrong and I think I screwed up. I think that I was doing so many things at one time that I really, really screwed up on this one. Let me see if I can redeem myself uh, right now uh, because I had a wonderful, let me tell you what I I had done. Um, I did some, you know my friend Jelani Cobb, probably see him on MSNBC all the time. He's been on Our Common Ground. It, when I had Jelani Club on my show, it was, it was I'm telling you, it was the worst interview I ever did. It was like, I don't know what was wrong with him. I don't know what was wrong with me. But um Johnny Cobb was like uh, uh I couldn't get it out, he couldn't get it out. I mean, it was a, it was a horrible interview. And um uh, we can figure out what was going on. So it was like pulling teeth. It was like I was at the dentist and I was trying to get him to talk about one thing. And at the time, he was a graduate student at Emory, and I couldn't understand. I've talked to this guy uh, a number of times. You know, I used to have a a habit of before I had a guest on, I would need to talk to them on, on the phone to help us formulate what we were going to try to do while they were on the air. But anyway, Jelani Cobb for Frontline did investigative reporting on the police department in Newark, New Jersey. And he did a fine job, a really, really fine job. Um, Raz Baraka is the mayor at the time, and 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 he talked with, he went out on the street with, uh, with Newark cops. He talked to the superintendent of police, he talked to the mayor, he talked to some some black citizens, and I think we got it here. At the end of the night, I talked to officers Ruiz and Riello about what I'd been seeing. I'm just going to ask you straight out, is it possible to make the communities that we're talking about safe while respecting people's constitutional rights? Absolutely. Absolutely, without a doubt. Yeah. We go out there every night. But the, the, the DOJ doesn't feel like that's what's happened here. That's an opinion. I mean, we, out, we go out there. It's not any disrespect to anybody out there. It's not about race. You know, violating their rights has nothing to do with that. We have a job to do. Mm-hmm. We live in the city. We care about this city. Mm-hmm. It's what we do. I have to tell you something, though, right? So I grew up in Queens, right? And on my first experience, the police that I was thrown up against a mailbox just like this one. Um, I was coming home from a baseball game, had my uniform on, carrying a bat and a glove. And the guy said it was a crime that was committed and so on. And I was kind of like, I'm coming from a game. Um, 
The next experience I had was a few years later. I was walking with a group of friends of mine, and a cop pulled a gun on us and told us to get on the sidewalk. He pulled out his weapon to make you comply with whatever he needed you to do at the time for his safety and other officers' safety, even for your own safety. You could point your weapon mm-hmm. at somebody and give them commands to mm-hmm. comply. Mm-hmm. Once you feel like the, the threat's neutralized, like, you know, they're complying mm-hmm. with you, then you put your weapon away and, you know, you have a normal interaction. Weapon. Yeah, have a normal interaction. I mean, can you really have a normal interaction if someone's pointed a gun at you? I don't, I don't... You gotta look at it our way. Mm-hmm. I mean, they say there was five, six males, and one of them possibly has a weapon. Mm-hmm. What would you do as a police officer? Mm-hmm. You encounter a group of males, one supposedly has a weapon on them. How would you confront the situation? I'm not sure, but that's why I asked the question about can you do this? Can this, can this be done in a way that still respects people's rights? Well, I, think that's, I think that's the question that everybody is wondering about policing. So we try to go out there and respect everybody's rights. Exactly. We're not out here saying, hey, we're going to violate this person's rights. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're here for. Mm-hmm. I tell you, our main objective is to go home at the end of the night. We have families, we have children, we have wives, we have girlfriends, we have sisters, we have... Where we differ. See, my, my thing is, um, and again, if I get stopped by the police, mm-hmm. and, I, and, I, and I am a police officer, I listen, mm-hmm. I routinely put my hand if I'm in the car up on the uh, on the roof. Mm-hmm. I take all the precautions too. Mm-hmm. But in that situation there, or any situation, I think I would have complied. I understand what your instincts are, mm-hmm. but when you say you're being surrounded, you're being surrounded by officers that you could clearly see mm-hmm. are officers. I don't believe it had to go there if he would have just... But see, this is something like the key difference, which is that, you know, kind of being surrounded by police is not a position in which you feel like you're safe for someone like me. I understand that. I would say, you know, I don't know what's happening here. I don't know what the agenda of these people is. I'm, I know I'm surrounded. The idea of complying is like, sure, that's maybe your second thought. Right. Your immediate thought is, you know, I'm in jeopardy. Like, what's happening here? I think that fundamentally the difference is, do you, if you are surrounded by police officers, do you feel more safe or less safe than right. you were two minutes earlier? Right. And what, what needs to be is that you need to feel like you're safe and that you can explain, and then the situation's over. It's not that way right now. In that moment, you're actually about to make a stop of this person. Where's your head? I'll admit there's, there's, there's time when, when, I'm, when I have fear. And I think fear is probably one of your best friends. And there are times where you hear gunshots, and we have to run to those shots. Most people can't equate or understand what that's about. Your heart rate, when it starts to increase and you're, you know, you're running, and then you're going to encounter someone and you may ultimately have to wrestle with that person. you got some bad people out there that have no problem going to the mat with a police officer and trying to take their gun and maybe even using it against them. So I don't think anybody could ever understand the stress of the situation. I've heard about the stress of the job over and over again. Many cops today feel like they're under siege from all sides, especially James Stewart, the president of Newark's largest police union. I'm a fourth-generation police officer here in Newark. Mm. My great-grandfather started in 1890. My grandfather, my father, who retired in 2003, and now me. Um, And I'm in my 21st year. Mm -hmm. I don't know that too many more guys want their family members to follow in their footsteps the way this profession's going, Mm -hmm. and specifically the way things are going here in Newark. Somewhere along the line, we have become the bad guy, 
everybody's against us. You know, F the police. That's become the way of the community now. You know, I mean, who is the guy that's going to say, I want to go be a NORC cop? They have minimal starting pay. Mm -hmm. We're going to take away half of your benefits. We have our own administration against us here. And you got the Department of Justice overseeing your department. Who's going to want the job? After Taco Bell says no and after Sears says no and McDonald's won't have you, well, maybe the North Police Department's hiring. You know, let me go see what they got to offer. What do you think the prospects for reform are here? I know it's a necessity. Um, I don't know where the problem started, but there is an animosity or a lack of trust. You know, as, as soon as there's any sort of physical force exerted by a police officer, everybody's got their cell phones out. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to catch us doing something wrong. You know, no one's jumping in to help us subdue this guy that just robbed a woman down the street, but they want to catch us doing something wrong. And uh, when you got the cop out, out there in the street facing all this negative opposition day in and day out, does there come a point when the police officer is going to say, hey, you know what, maybe he doesn't have to go to jail. Yeah, you know, maybe I'll take the path of least resistance. Maybe I'll put the blinders on as I'm driving by the corner where the 10 guys are hanging out. You know, is that what the community wants too? I can't imagine too many folks in Newark would just want the police to stand down. But I did want to talk to people here about how they feel about the department. So I went to visit an old friend of mine, Ryan Haygood. What's up, Doc? Sir. How you doing? Good to see you. I can't believe that I saw you. He invited some of them over to meet with me. Were you all surprised to find that the police department was under investigation by the Department of Justice? No, I wasn't. What? Because I know the history of the Newark Police Department. Yeah. I'm 65, so mm-hmm. I'm probably a little old and might be the oldest thing in this room. And the Newark Police Department, and we're talking about the 70s, I guess the 60s, they treated African Americans very unfair, truly unfair. There's a culture, and particularly dealing with white policemen. Mm-hmm. They see young black men or black men as thugs. So mm-hmm. for me, in order to survive, you have to know the system. There's certain clothes I won't wear. I will never fit the profile. That I won't. I taught my son and my daughter that. It depends on the socioeconomic or the profile of the individuals and how you experience the police. I certainly believe it. There is an expectation that the police are going to crack down on the level of murders, the violence, the robberies that are taking place. I teach first grade, so seven-year-olds. And so I have little boys in my classroom who are like, oh, no, I don't like the police. They're saying to me that, you know, well, the police came in my house and they got my dad or they stripped someone from my house. And it's like a violent encounter with the police. When seven-year-olds have a repulsive response to the police, you have a problem. We've been out on patrol with some officers who are making a major initiative to get guns off the street. And, you know, they're kind of stopping people. They're uh, pulling over, frisking people in some instances. And I have to say that what I saw was very uh, disturbing. But this is what people have said is necessary in order to get guns off the street. I don't see an inconsistency with respecting people's constitutional rights and protecting public safety. Mm-hmm. In our area, we do have neighbors who have been victimized in violent ways by crimes. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that police officers can, in three out of four of the stops, violate people's constitutional rights. And police officers, as they've been under investigation in Newark for many years, when they were violating rights, 
the city wasn't safer. Mm-hmm. So it's not the case to say that if you violate constitutional rights, it's a safer society. But that's the position that they put us in, our communities in. They make it seem like, well, this is the way we have to do it. We know it's not true. I mean, if you watch cops the television show, you see white people going off on police officers and nothing happens to these people. And it's really bad that, that we are in a position where you say, well, mother, do you want this to raise your child in a safer neighborhood? And what do you think we're going to say? Do whatever you can do to keep my neighborhood safe. It's bad when they put us in a position to say, do you want this or do you want that? In Newark, you're reminded of that bind all too often on the local news. A couple of months after I was out with them, the Newark gang unit was a top story. Eighth grader Jamad Watkins was allegedly assaulted by undercover officers in Newark. Officers, his attorney says, failed to initially identify themselves. These police officers knocked him down and grabbed his left arm and pulled it behind his back with such force that it cracked it in half. It turns out one of the officers is Wilberto Ruiz. They get confused whether we're actually criminals. They all thought you guys were the stick-up guys. I thought you guys were going to rob me. The department is investigating the allegations, but he has already been disciplined for not filing a report about the incident. We also found out that another officer we've met in the gang unit, Kenneth Gallette, was suspended and charged for allegedly coercing a woman to perform oral sex in exchange for leniency. He's pled not guilty. I don't see an inconsistency with respecting people's constitutional rights and protecting public safety. Mm-hmm. In our area, we do have neighbors who have been victimized in violent ways by crimes, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that police officers can in three out of four of the stops violate people's constitutional rights. And police officers, as they've been under investigation in Newark for many years, when they were violating rights, the city wasn't safer. Mm-hmm. So it's not the case to say that if you violate constitutional rights, it's a safer society. But that's the position that they put us in, our communities in. They make it seem like, well, this is the way we have to do it. We know it's not true. I mean, if you watch cops the television show, you see white people going off on police officers and nothing happens to these people. And it's really bad that, that we are in a position where you say, well, mother, do you want this to raise your child in a safer neighborhood? And what do you think we're going to say? Do whatever you can do to keep my neighborhood safe. It's bad when they put us in a position to say, do you want this or do you want that? In Newark. Do you want this or do you want that? That is where we are as a community in combating police brutality, police misconduct, and police killing in America. So my question is this. When you hear the cry for defunding the police, are you looking at the this or that? Or are you deciding that It cannot be, it does not have to be either. That it can be a system of protecting the community without violating its citizenry. I I want you to think about, and we're going to end Black History Month next week on the issue 
of the battle cry must be defund the police. Because by defunding the police, you are essentially demanding the dismantlement of the existing system, a system which is corrupt and operating the way in which it is designed to operate. There is no question that white supremacy, white nationalism, and white privilege has essentially, like Pac-Man, gobbled up the notion of this and 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 protection in police departments and it's happened because cities and states and governments have signed on to that kind of behavior through the financial and employment agreements with unions that are essentially no more than the Confederacy, that their interest is not the function of the police, but their interest is the function of protecting police officers and their jobs. So that is where we're going to be next week here at Our Common Ground. We, I, I, I just think that one of the things that we have to do is to put police in the context of history. So your homework assignment is to watch The Masters of New York. It's a movie. It's about how the police was formulated in New York City. And I would even say um, that you should watch um, HBO series that has been long gone, and it was in the West, and watch how the police moved from the Northeast into the West. Uh, and we're going to cover that history on Our Common Ground next week. So do your homework. Be safe. You know, trust your struggle. That's all, you know, that's how we're going to be. The racism of the Supreme Court, the racism of the Constitution, all the way down, Amy Coney Barrett, the racism that is in the system it's like an email to all white people that all white people get. Y'all can act a fool. Y'all can cuss the police out. They ain't going to hit you. You can uh, get in Nancy Pelosi's face. Ain't nobody going to stop you. You can confront Mitt Romney at the airport. Ain't nobody going to bother you. You white. Go ahead, girl. You you want to take over the Capitol? Jump through the window, girl. You, you go ahead. Pop. Okay, she got shot. But the rest of them, they figure they white. They can just take it over. 
It's because of their whiteness, and it's because of the whiteness of everybody in charge that nothing's happening. Miss Graham, please remember this. Donald Trump made new laws after the George Floyd protests in Washington, D.C. He increased felonies for property damage to punish black people and the white people who were allied with them in the Floyd, George Floyd protests. But you know what, Ms. Graham? Even with Biden in charge, not one of these white people have been charged with one of the new laws that Donald Trump made for black people. That's why you cannot get me to sit here and be happy about Biden. Hey, I don't have nothing against Biden. I think he's a great man. I think Kamala is a great person. I think the system that they're operating in is demonic. The system ain't corrupt. Corruption is the system. And no matter how many good people we put in it, as long as it's the original racist system that they continue to rely on the default racism to get things done, it cannot live. So we as a black people have to kill the racist system in America. And just like we killed slavery and just like we killed Jim Crow, I believe black people in the next 50 years are going to kill racist policing because they've already targeted it, and now their movement will, only, will mainly focus on it for the next 50 years. Just like we did Jim Crow, we didn't give up until we broke it. Now that we said defund the police, that's the... That's the that's the rally cry of the black movement for the next 50 years. And at the end of that 50 years, it, black people will have figured out how to create a a, a, munis, a municipality and governing uh, bureaucracies that are um, less racist um, and less anti-black in the administration of law. And there are plenty of examples of countries that do that really well. That even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped, that even as we tired, we tried, that we'll forever be tied together, victorious, not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promised glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. Thank you for joining us tonight at Our Common Ground. Join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m., transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Graham. And I'll be listening for you, reminding you to trust your story. Good night, and thank you for being with us.